0: Truly, we're in a race to make value work.
1: Welcome to season one of the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. Welcome to this week's episode of Race to Value. This is Eric Weaver, and I had the immense pleasure of interviewing on a webinar, Dr. Ernest Grant, President of the American Nurses Association, Dr. Jan jones Shank, Senior Vice President, College of Health Professions at WGU, and Jason Thompson, Vice President, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at WGU. We discussed the important topic of how to advance health equity and reduce racial disparities in care through transformation of the nursing workforce. I want to put on record that here at the ACLC, we can say without hesitation that Black Lives Matter, and this is an important public health issue. As many leaders and members of healthcare organizations across the nation are addressing the disproportionate Black and brown mortality of the COVID-19 pandemic, this is now an important public health issue. And just within a day of us having this important conversation with this panel, 39 health systems in 45 states in Washington, D.C. have officially declared that addressing racism and the public health disparities caused by racism are a paramount issue in value-based care. So I think in this important episode of Race to Value, we really want to put this on the forefront and really address the impact that systemic racism has on adverse outcomes and really addressing the fact that it poses a real threat to the health of our families, our patients, and in our, our communities. We must stand together to have a, a unified front and a, an a elevated voice to really capture the attention of people across the nation and have a clear call to action. Eric, I'm so grateful the ACLC could host this important conversation with ANA and
0: WGU. We must double down our efforts. Systemic racism poses a real threat to the health of our patients, families, and communities. At the ACLC, we stand with all of those who've raised their voices to capture the attention of people across the nation and call for action, personal and systemic, to fix the problem of racism in healthcare today. Without further ado, let's turn it over to our amazing panel.
1: Okay, I'll go ahead and get started today. Very excited to be speaking about this important topic in our society. Uh, My name is Eric Weaver. I am the Executive Director of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. And in today's, and I'll be serving as the moderator today. Uh, our virtual panel discussion includes Dr. Ernest Grant, President of the American Nurses Association, Dr. Jan jones Shank, Senior Vice President, College of Health Professions for WGU, and Jason Thompson, Vice President, Diversity, Equity, and, and Inclusion for WGU. And they are gonna provide their thought leadership to really advance solutions for how we promote health equity and reduce racial disparities in care through transformation of the nursing workforce. Before we get started today, I wanted to provide uh, some reference to population health research that shows us that the American healthcare system is not immune to institutional race, racial discrimination. Uh, African-American patients tend to receive lower quality health care, including treatments for cancer, HIV, prenatal care, diabetes, and preventive care. They are also less likely to receive treatment for cardiovascular disease and they're more likely to have unnecessary limb amputations. African-American men, in particular, have the worst health outcomes of any major demographic group in our country, and health disparities also affect African-American women, leading to increased death rates from breast cancer, threefold risk of dying during pregnancy, and significantly greater chance of dying needlessly from preventable disease. In this current pandemic, communities of color are also being disproportionately hit hard, by COVID-19 due to inadequate access to testing in African-American neighborhoods. And for those likely to obtain testing, there's a much higher death rate. Three times more likely are African-Americans in facing death due to COVID-19, which further illustrates inequities within our healthcare system. So needless to say, research has been irrefutably able to show that if you control for all the variables that contribute to health disparities, education, income, access to health insurance, African Americans still get the worst quality of healthcare of any demographic in our country. And in recognition of this institutional discrimination that we have to overcome, I want us today to engage our panel in discussion about how can we care for patients in a more culturally competent way, uh, specifically with regard to the nursing workforce so we can mirror the unique cultural characteristics of our population. As we consider racial disparities in our conversation today, I want us to also think about higher education and the role that it plays in partnering with the healthcare industry to establish a nursing workforce for tomorrow. The continuance of systematic racism and privilege granted to white people in America must be addressed if we are to achieve true population health and parity and outcomes for all. So for today's first question for our panel, I wanted to start the conversation and really open up the conversation on race in our country And Jason, I wanted to uh, address this question to you. I want to, as we as a society start having a conversation, identifying structural racism in healthcare or any other institution. You know, how do we open up a conversation when, when it comes to recognizing systemic racism, it seems like we have a, this really big challenge in in, uh, getting universal recognition that it even exists. For example, for those that resent the Black Lives Matter movement, they may say all lives matter. Or in the incidents of, that we see of nursing while Black, someone may say, oh, they're just using the race card. So how can we engage society in a conversation to foster a better understanding about the presence of racism in our society?
0: Yeah, that's a complicated question, and um, you cited some pretty incredible you know, data that's sad you know to say the least and i think the work here is we have to continue to bring up the issue and continue to engage you know i think many times people want this simple answer but i always use the analogy that um you know i i do a lot of diversity training and i tell people you know i can't make you racist in 45 minutes and i can't undo it in 45 minutes that it takes a lot of conversations and um you know i look back at my own know views of the world and when i was in college i was horribly homophobic that view has changed over the years partly because of information that's shared with me my own desire to learn and be a better person so my recommendation would we have to continue to have this conversation and realize that um you know it it takes that constant um, engagement and that there isn't a simple answer these things take time i take faith in the fact that people keep bringing it up these kind of sessions are helpful and that if all of us continue to engage, we can you know, move the needle. Um, it, Unfortunately, is gonna happen quick. I mean, that's probably the biggest challenge here is that for many of these challenges, especially within the healthcare are urgent. We need to move quicker, but we have to keep having the conversation and not lose hope. I think that's gonna be our biggest challenge Is many times it feels like nothing's changed. People don't want to engage, um, but we have to continue to do that and realize that for many times, it, we have to keep having the conversation and that is a solution.
1: Absolutely. We must have the conversation and I think we have to also think about the role that the nursing profession plays in really creating a sense of active, activism in our industry. There's never been a period in American history where the health of Blacks has been equal to the health of Whites. It just does not, there's no period in time where that exists, where you have that parity. It seems like disparity is built into the system and routine medical practice continues to treat Black and White Americans differently and this must be changed if we're truly to transform our healthcare system and improve outcomes for all. Advancing health equity is going to require a, a justice-oriented framework where we really have to identify structural racism and its manifestation in medical care and then dismantle the grasp that it has on pre-existing health systems. And that may require us to incentivize disparities reduction you know, through value-based payment models and other ways to engineer the new healthcare system of tomorrow. I wanted to ask the panel today, I was reading an article last June. It was in JAMA, and uh, it was written by Donald Berwick. Um, It was called The Moral Determinants of Health, and he uh, proposed some really, what some may say are radical ideas about how to create a justice-oriented framework uh, for the healthcare industry. He called for this moral force to happen in professional leadership in healthcare, where you can mobilize around this issue of social justice And he posited for the health professions to really play an outspoken role in determining social conditions, countering inequity, and really fighting against uh, structural racism. And, you know, Dr. Grant, I know the ANA um, has a similar position uh, calling for the nursing profession really to speak out, um, you know, to opposition and, and really tying in that position statement to the values in the ethical code of the nursing profession, which really directs nurses to respect the inherent dignity, worth, and unique attributes that are um, uh, a part of the, the human rights of all individuals. So Dr. Grant, I wanted to pose this question to you. How should the nursing profession mobilize around this important issue of institutional racism and health disparities, and then what would you say to those that want the nursing profession just to stay focused on caring for the ill instead of really demanding and supporting societal reform?
2: Well, thank you very much, Eric, and I'll answer the first part of your question first. Uh, uh, just to sort of tag on with what you uh, had first asked of, uh, of Jason, you know, events around the country that are happening today tend to be a very stark reminder when we look at, uh, you know, that COVID-19 is not the only pandemic that Americans are facing. You know, again, just referencing back to the data that you uh, presented about African Americans and healthcare and the disparity uh, that they receive. Uh, we know that racism is a longstanding public health crisis that impacts not only the mental, but spiritual and physical health. And you know, COVID-19 obviously is just exacerbating this crisis right now, and, and adding stress to the Black community and other communities of color which are experiencing obviously just higher rates of infections and death. But I think the the underlying factors that drive this is the disproportionate burden of disease on the social determinants of health, um, you know, meaning that the social and the, the economic factors that contribute to poor access to health care or poor health status, including, you know, incidents of like, uh, you know, chronic disease like uh, diabetes and, and hypertension. So. Um, I think to the the way the nursing profession mobilized around this important uh, issue is that it is part of who we are as nurses to uh, you know to call attention to that obviously we try to promote you know uh, health and health means um, you know not necessarily just applying in the acute care setting you know in the hospital it is also uh, outside of the hospital as well and you know I had the opportunity uh, back in May to uh, have a discussion with the, uh, the the House Committee on Ways and Means on the disparate impact of COVID-19 on these uh, communities of color. And we shared some recommendations that were specific to, uh, specifically related to COVID-19 and to address some of the long-standing issues of racial disparities, such as uh, the crisis and the maternal uh, mortality and basic access to health care, including the, the, the mental health services and i think to answer the second part of your question about what to say to to those who who want the nursing profession to stay focused on caring for the ill instead of demanding uh you know the uh supporting social reform reform you know we have as nurses we have a responsibility to use our voice to call for change you know our code of ethics obligates us as nurses to be allies and to uh, to advocate and speak up against racism, discrimination, and injustice, and we are not uh, truly uh, fulfilling that or, or following our code of ethics when, uh, you know, we're expected to just only treat uh, in the acute care setting and forget about what else is going on, uh, you know, we want to promote health and wellness so that people don't wind up in the acute care setting. Uh, so it's sort of a, a double-edged sword, if you will, that nurses have to uh, have to do. But primarily, we want to focus mainly on prevention and good health care. Uh, you know, before the individual winds up in the acute care setting or long-term care setting, uh, when there's so much more that we can do in the uh, uh, the uh, preventive uh, forms uh, of that. So I'll uh, leave it at that, or or perhaps uh, you know ask the have some more dialogue if if necessary.
1: I would love to hear from you as well, Dr. Jones Shank. Uh, what what would you um, say to someone that says, you know, nurses just need to practice and do their job and care for patients, and then they need to stay out of the political arena? There's no place for that in the profession.
3: Thank you, Eric, and and um, Dr. Grant. Um, I think the important consideration here that I'd like to add is that we as nurses need to go upstream to the source. Um, So continuing to think about our practice as illness-based versus finding the source of the illness, the source of the problem, and going upstream uh, to seek those solutions. So that's really where the societal reform comes into play. It's, it's very much like what we've talked about in healthcare over the last couple of years in, in regards to value-based care, in the sense that we are trying to bend the cost curve by going upstream, and that means early intervention, that means prevention, that means engaging clients and families earlier in their health management process uh, to, to uh, secure and obtain better health outcomes for them downstream. The same is true here in regard to societal reform. Uh, As a profession, we make a promise to society uh, that we will serve the health needs of society. And in this case, those health needs and the imperative really is very clear to us uh, that we are not doing all that we need to do for uh, diverse populations. And we're not achieving the outcomes. So we have a responsibility for outcomes, not just for caring for illness in the moment.
1: I want to stay on this topic of value-based healthcare, and, and Jan, you bring up some great points. And you know, so many um, leaders in the healthcare industry they look at that value equation, and you know, better outcomes, lower costs, better patient experience. And you know, they don't think of outcomes in terms of addressing disparities. They almost want to apply a blanket strategy. Well, let's address the chronically ill. And, and but they don't really take into account the cultural nuance and the in, importance of really delivering care that that truly meets the needs of the population and in a culturally relevant way. And, you know, there was, um, you know, as value based care has emerged over the last you know, two decades, I really think the um, the impact on racial health disparities has been limited. And there was a great article um, last month in health affairs and it was called value based health care. Must value Black lives, and it was interesting. This article uh, proposed a framework for how to incorporate racial justice into value-based healthcare, which included uh, the reengineering of pay-for-performance models that include health equity as a financial measure for success. And even with the realignment of financial incentives over time, it still proves difficult to counteract the structural racism and policy. And it's something that we may not even be aware exists, but it's there and it results in poor social determinants of health and really health inequity. So Dr. Grant, I'll pose this question for you uh, to start off with. Um, You know, How can we as a country build the economic will to reorient the value-based care policies around racial and health justice and what role uh, does the nursing profession play in advocating for this change within value-based care payment models? just as much as nursing programs are integrating value-based care into its curriculum, you know, how can we also hardwire conformance to social justice within the nursing profession?
2: Well, first I, I think we must be the change that we want to see in our workplace and in our community. So, uh, you know, uh, so as nurses, we, you know, we start that, uh, that change. And, uh, and of course, um, you know, we uh, were able to, you um, Uh, get other thought leaders, uh, you know, uh, people who are looking at value-based care and et cetera to begin to adopt what, uh, you know, what we're wanting to see. Uh, You know, one of the first priorities that I set as president, uh, as ANA president, was to promote efforts that would increase the diversity of nursing. And ANA is committed to implementing comprehensive strategies to uh, address these inequities. But again, we must start early. Uh, To eradicate a lot of the stereotypes, Uh, one of the things that I do, uh, you know, I go into elementary schools, and that's where it needs to start. For uh, perhaps for someone who wants to consider nursing as a career or or whatever, Uh, I go in, work with a fourth grade class. Um, The uh, the audience may not realize this, but I am uh, six foot five. Uh, So, you know, so when you're going into a uh, you know nursing, I mean a, a elementary school and uh you know you're talking to young kids about considering nursing as a career uh you know if they see the six foot five black guy there you know who knows there may be uh, a young black boy or or a hispanic boy or even a, a white boy who probably never thought about nursing um you know but uh perhaps in their mind they're thinking well if he can do it you know why can't i you know and we begin to uh you know see that uh, that there so we began to eradicate those stereotypes that may be there also, we aim for uh, a a itself we aim for a nursing workforce to be equally representative of the diverse population that we serve, so there it comes to the nursing schools being able to admit more people of color and from different cultures and to embrace from there as well. It also means uh, doing uh, you know some of the other fundamental change, such as the textbooks that we have uh, you know the way that they begin to address. Uh, what they think may be cultural but uh, but it really doesn't uh, you know it, it lumps people into a certain category and because we don't fit that stereotype um, you know we begin to begin to uh, you know create some some complications so to speak uh, or th- the way that uh, conformance so to speak to uh, to you know to social justice uh, within the uh, Uh, profession that way. So we have to look at, um, you know, remodeling our textbooks and how they begin to address things. And then I think uh, within the uh, profession itself, uh, having uh, leadership academies or mentorship program. I know ANA has, uh, we have a great mentorship program that uh, uh, actually the first time last year, I think we had a little over 9,000 people to participate in that, and it's it's mentorship from the beginning, uh, from the novice nurse all the way through to the seasoned nurse who's going to uh, perhaps go into positions of leadership. Uh, you know, they too, even though they're recognized as a leader, if they're just becoming a manager or or even uh, uh, going into the C-suite, they still need to be mentored as to uh, you know how they can begin to set the example of change uh, along those ways and implementing a system of check and balances within uh, the, the hospital systems. And you know, I've always have said that uh, hospitals and uh, long-term care facilities should take a look at the, the makeup of, of their boards or of their administration and their leadership and see, does it reflect the people that you're caring for as well? Those are some of the ways that we can go about getting these changes underway. It is going to take a while to, to get it done, but that is certainly some of the, uh, the ways that we can begin to do that.
1: It's a great response, Dr. Grant. And I wanted to ask uh, Dr. Jones-Shank some follow-up on this important issue of value-based care. Again, revisiting the term value-based care, it's become, you know, kind of embedded in the healthcare lexicon over the last couple of decades. And we've had a couple of iterations, you know, accountable care and and so forth, but it's really based on the economic imperative you know first and foremost at least in the industry's mind that you know we have to lower costs you know our the per capita spend is way too much we're more than twice as the the second industrialized country in healthcare spend but you know given that there is an economic imperative we all realize it how do we lead a social movement towards health equity that is based on the moral imperative you know how do we get how do we hardwire that Into uh, nursing to where we're thinking about that every day a nurse steps into work like what they can do and have some sense of intentionality. I'm very interested in Jason. I'd love for you to join. In this as well. Just thinking about just in the terms of moving the the industry moving society. How do we align, you know, both these efforts in terms of cost reduction and better outcomes, but also have the societal focus that we have to do what's right for all populations and address these important disparities.
3: Yeah, it's, it's really a great point, Eric, and I think, I think part of what we're fighting against is sort of the uh, historical tyranny of the aggregate. So we aggregate all of our data and we typically have not been as um, focused on uh, stratifying data by populations. So with regard to your earlier comment where, you know, the outcomes Uh, data that are driving uh, reimbursements, for example, in in, uh, value-based care, may not be specific enough to the health equity issues that could be uh, explored and exposed by a deeper analysis of population-specific data. So population health strategies are really critical here. Uh, They need to be a part of nursing education. And we need to align uh, the scientific approaches with the concepts of social justice. So, um, if you're if you're not able to see, once you see where there is inequity, then you can do something about it, and you have the opportunity to um, uh, practice in ways that are more just and more equitable. You know, w- a- another example I would just say is that even in our our research. Uh, and I've been reading a lot about the, uh, uh, the research that's being done, the trials that are being done on the vaccines, and uh, the extent to which diverse populations are being included in that research, or perhaps they're being included but the research analysis is not fully stratified by population. That's a weakness for our entire system. And so we need to start, we need to make sure that in our curricula, uh, in in our preparation of all health professionals, especially nurses, that they're thinking about these kinds of uh, important elements that are both science and social justice. These are married concepts. Um, I think we also need to um, uh, make sure that our environments, uh, back to what um, Dr. Grant was saying, um, there's a, an, an identification of role and personal uh, type that occurs. He talked about going and talking to uh, young people in uh, middle schools and in elementary schools. And when our faculty are not diverse and our faculty do not represent uh, the diversity of our population, then uh, we lose out on attracting uh, people to nursing because they don't see themselves in nursing. Um, They're not not in our faculty, the the visibility of people who uh, come from similar backgrounds, who look similar, who have similar cultural um, origins, Uh, if we don't do that, if we don't create those environments through our um, faculty recruitment and development, uh, then we are uh, perpetuating this problem.
1: I want to stay on this point uh, on visibility and uh, nursing leadership and, and, you know, thinking about this social movement. I reflect back, you know, and as I was preparing for the, the panel discussion today, I found the Institute of Medicine's report entitled the future of nursing, leading change and advancing health. It came out 10 years ago to the day, like with this conversation right now. So we're 10 years past the issuance of this report. And in that report, it made clear in one of the recommendations that nurses must have an increased number of seats on boards. They must be in decision-making roles. They must be moving the healthcare industry towards health equity and providing uh, better outcomes for all. And there was this goal that was stated in the report. Uh, It was called the, you know, I think it was a goal of having 10,000 nurses on boards by 2020, which is right now, and really, what, what the report was seeking to do in, re- in its recommendation was incorporating the unique perspective of nurses to achieve the goals of improved societal health ac- outcomes. So I wanted to stay on this for a couple of questions, and I have some specific questions on nursing leadership, but I wanted to ask you uh, first, Jason, as companies are diversifying their boards and their C-suite, what will it take for organizations to make strides in addressing the underrepresentation of women, minorities, and nurses on corporate boards and senior leadership roles. And how is this different than maybe some that would say, oh, this is just affirmative action and meeting a quota. Like, how do we seriously get to a point where we're recognizing there's a problem, we need to fix it, and here's a solution?
0: Yeah, I I think we're, we're at the point now where we have to just be honest about what's happening. If you're not intentional, you can't do it. You know, when we right. wanted to integrate schools, we just took black children and white children and put them in different schools. We had to, that's how it works. This board issue is the same. We, we have to be unafraid about, call it a quota, call it whatever you want. But if we don't become intentional, we're going to keep seeing the same problem. And, you know, there's, there's a weird kind of equation here if you think about it. We treat black people poorly and it actually costs us more. Mm-hmm. And what's been said is kind of interesting because Black people don't, aren't a significant number. Uh, they don't represent a lot of people in the, in the healthcare system, right? So in theory, it's covered up, but it's more expensive. So the small percentage of people come into the healthcare system, we treat them poorly, but because we aggregate our data and we don't look by race, it's lost in that and we think, oh, we're profitable. When in fact, we could actually be more profitable by treating black people better you know there's an equation here that we should be honest about and intentional and if, and if we're gonna talk about a boards we have to do the same thing or in a leadership team we have to be intentional look at our data and say you know this data is embarrassing this this yeah. is actually statistically impossible for us to be in a situation where women make up a significant amount of healthcare providers but we don't see them on the board how's that even possible mm-hmm. and because it is possible and we're doing this the only way to undo it is say you know what we got to have this uncomfortable conversation talk about race talk about gender and look at this board and say, this is mathematically impossible for us to keep getting this outcome. And to undo it, we have to be intentional. We have to say things that make people uncomfortable and we can be unapologetic because we are about solutions. And I think the more we can focus on the solution and where we wanna go, the better we are to get there. And the data supports that this is something we could do. If we're really about saving money and being efficient and providing better care, let's call it out for what it is. Just as an aside, I think one of the challenges we have right now is we call it health disparities. And when I think of the term health disparities, that's something that's outside of me. I don't control that. If I say this is racist, that feels like me. And then I need to look at myself and what behavior do we have? And I think we do need to talk about this as racism, Mm -hmm. not about health disparities, because that feels like it's not me. And we have to use terms that make people feel like, yeah, that is me that I have a responsibility in this. And so those would be my suggestions and recommendations is we got to get uncomfortable and stay in that uncomfortable space.
1: It's a great point, Jason. And I, I really appreciate the comments there. And I, I think you, you make your spot on. We have to identify it and call it out for what it is. There is racism. It's institutionalized. It exists. We need to, we need to overcome it. And I think in going back to the kind of the spirit of the, the IOM Future of Nursing Report, you know, there was this call to action. We've got to get nurses in leadership. And and I, I wanted to ask um, Dr. Joan Shank and Dr. Grant here. Um, first, have we seen the, le- the leadership and empowerment of nurses improve over the last decade? And then to Jason's point, you know, if there is this sense of empowerment, can they begin to redefine the terms of engagement here where we're really calling out, you know, institutional racism for what it is, where we can get past, you know, health disparities and some of the more nuanced language, which may seemingly marginalize, you know, this problem and not really elevate it to the level of importance where it really is in our society.
3: Yeah, Eric, I'll I'll just uh, chime in really quickly here. You know, I remember when the, a uh, future nursing report came out and it was a groundbreaking report. It crashed the IOM site multiple times as people were trying to download this. A number of recommendations that have been uh, dramatic and changing uh, the way we've looked and worked towards transforming the nursing workforce. But I also remember when this particular uh, uh, element about nurses on boards Uh, was being discussed and 10,000 nurses on boards. Wow, that just sounded like a Mm -hmm. moonshot, right? That was just this enormous target. Um, It's less than 0.03% of nurses in the country. Uh, When you look at over 3 million nurses, 10,000 isn't very many. Um, But at the time, uh, 10 years ago, it was a moonshot. And um, so I think what they've done, we were really, Proud as uh, WGU College of Health to be one of the uh, original um, sponsors of this uh, initiative. And we've seen a significant number of our faculty and alumni join the database and achieve board appointments. Um, I think the last data I saw uh, was maybe in August, there were uh, the the national target was over 7,500 nurses on boards. Um, and it's increased, it's continued to increase. So how did they do it? They did it because they set, they understood the imbalances, they called out the imbalances, they set a goal, they created a supportive structure of education, interest, recruitment, uh, management of data, communication around the goal, and that's how they did it. So it's, it's as, as Jason, I think, pointed out, language matters, language is really important. And sometimes we use softened language because we don't want uh, to hurt people's feelings. Well, we're hurting far more than people's feelings right now by using overly nuanced language to describe this problem. Uh, We need to set that aside and we need to be more direct. And then we need to to go beyond the identification of the problem into the real structural problem-solving strategies Nurses on boards gives us an exemplar. There are many others around the country, uh, exemplars for how you solve these kinds of imbalances. Um, so it can be done. Uh, I think once we agree that we will, we will do these things.
2: I'd also just uh, just like to add um, uh, to to what Dr. Jones Shank has has said. Uh, well, currently, I think the uh, the last number that I saw. It was 7,950 nurses who are who are on boards, and the the whole idea behind this is that, and it's not just boards of uh, you know of healthcare systems, you know, whereas we we can definitely make a, a significant impact there as well. But when you take the social determinants of health, you know, all those 17 or 18 different identified things that can be addressed there, having a nurse to uh, become involved within the community and serving on boards, you know, such as maybe the school board or, uh, you know, the local town council or you know, are serving as a, you know an advisory uh, capacity or whatever. This is what is driving change as well, so that we can improve health and the efficiency of uh, of health and access to to healthcare by doing that. So uh, again, it sort of just relates back to the, your question earlier about uh, you know what do you say to people who think that nurses should just uh, you know remain at the bedside in the acute care setting? You know, nurses are everywhere, and this is uh, you know this is a prime example of. Uh, Because we are the most trusted profession, uh, you know, you get a nurse who is standing up and challenging, uh, you know, people of uh, the the town council that, you know, we need to improve water here or we've got a, uh, you know, a situation here where there's lack of access to, to proper food. All you have is a a Dollar General store that, uh, you know, people are going in to, uh, you know, to to buy their groceries. And we know that the food that may be sold in, in that store, and this is not to put down Dollar General in, in no way, but a lot of that food is high in sodium and uh, et cetera. So when you got a community that may have, um, you know, high, uh, may have, uh, you know, high diabetes uh, or, uh, you know, heart problems and et cetera, they don't need to be going there. They need to be going to a grocery store that, that can provide them with, fresh fruits and vegetables that they can uh, you know, have a healthy diet. So this is how having nurses on boards is gonna make a significant difference is not only in the, uh, the healthcare setting, but also out in the community so that again, there's improvement of health all the way around. And I'm proud to say also that, uh, you know ANA is also a member of this, uh, you know, of this drive and we'll continue to have uh, much more success with this. We've only got uh, two more months left in this campaign but it's not just going to end at 2020. We're going to continue to, to carry it on as we get more and more nurses to also consider to, to run for legislative offices. Uh, you know, even at the, the, the state level, they're going to be able to make a difference uh, because they know, they have been there, they understand, and now they can influence legislation that can also make lives a little bit easier also and address these health disparities.
3: You know, if I could add one more thing, Uh, Dr. Grant, you made me think of a great story and I have to share it. Um, Recently, uh, we uh, heard from one of our faculty members about a student in our RN to BSN program who had, through the course of his community and population health course, had done a number of um, assessments in his community. That's part of the curriculum is to do these assessments. And he became very, um, I would say, first of all, disappointed and then inspired um, by the things that he could do in his own community, the gaps that he saw. So he went and met with the mayor of his small town and said, There are all these things we need. We need mobile mammography. We need, um, Narcotics Anonymous. We have a big opioid addiction problem in our community. We need a suicide prevention line. He was talking with the mayor, and the mayor said, "Hey, that's that's not my business. That's not the business of running this town. Um, I, you know, we're not going to do any of those things." So this student ran for mayor, mm-hmm. and he won. And unfortunately, sadly, his opponent died during the campaign of diabetes associated complications. Mm. So the story just, I I mean, it just so illustrates um, that healthcare is local and it's where you live, it's where you work and seeing yourself as a nurse, as someone who can make a difference in your own community is a contribution that is, uh, I would say beyond ways that we've thought about our practice uh, traditionally and historically. Well, I, I have to say Florence always thought that way, but uh, <laughs> yeah. we, we, uh, that story really, I thought brought it all home.
1: Yes, it does. You know, I have to say one of the things I've learned over the last couple of years, which I think still our society really hasn't faced head on is that if we create diversity in the nursing workforce with regard to gender and age and ethnicity and sexual orientation, we can impact disparities in care. We can't overcome racism, and there was um, and just in my research, you know, kind of thinking about our discussion today, I, you know, just I, I found a really strong and compelling statement, and it came out of a report that was released in 2004. It was called "Missing Persons: Minorities in the Health Professions," and I want to read this quote just because it really resonated with me deeply. It said, "The fact that the nation's health professions." Have not kept pace with changing demographics may be an even greater cause of disparities in health access and outcomes than the persistent lack of health insurance for tens of millions of Americans. And when I read that, I was like, "Oh my gosh, that is so so powerful." It's true. And then we so if you look at the composition of the nursing workforce right now, you know, you have 81% of nurses that are white, 19% are from underrepresented racial and ethnic populations, and to this day, still African Americans and Hispanics are still grossly underrepresented in the RN ranks compared to the general population. And of course, the male, um, you know, gender itself is, as we all know, is underrepresented. I think it's about seven percent of the workforce. So, Jason, I wanted to ask you this question here. Um, you know, like. How do you, um, how can you provide your perspective on how organizations should be aiming towards nursing workforce diversification and really approach it with a quantifiable strategic plan? And it's not, and I wanted you to expand upon it a little bit more than that. You know, it's not just quantifying goals, reaching a quota, checking a box but then how can you actually raise the conversation to the level that it's uncomfortable within the organization that we have to do this to improve patient outcomes? And then I, and I also want you to um, somehow uh, address, uh, I guess this issue um, that we're seeing just with you know creating awareness and, and, and being able to, to really overcome this and, and cascading that out through the entire healthcare industry. I'd love to hear your perspective on this, Jason.
0: Yeah, you know, this is uh, something that often comes up and I actually um, worked in a health science center, as well as in a hospital system and and it was, you know, this, we always had this issue in conversation and I think one of our challenges we, we tend to work in silos. And What I mean by that is, at the high school level, we're not really having a conversation about health professions. And at even at the collegiate level. I remember I was recruiting uh, into our School of Medicine School of Nursing School of Pharmacy. And the more research we did, the more I realized our students of color were systematically removed sometimes because they didn't know what, how to write the, a well-written personal statement that there's these unwritten rules that were systematically removing our students of color. I actually, we had a native American student who had a four O and she had applied like four or five times and never got in. And I matched her with the mentor and the mentor said, oh, I can see why she doesn't get in. I said, why not? And she said, she has a personal, she has a terrible personal statement. And I thought, how is that the issue? You know, if you think about it, because we're not systematically working with each other, we've created this barrier for no reason. I mean, honestly, the personal statement shouldn't be that important. But she said, I can tell, that's why she won't get in. We worked with her, she had a new different personal statement, she gets in. So there are a lot of these barriers all along the ways and we have to begin working as partners. You know, at, at the university level, we need to really have partners at the high school level. High school level needs to have a partnership at the middle school level. And, you know, we created a a program when I was at the University of Colorado and we identified there's certain classes, if you fail them, you are not going to get in. So we started tutoring to those classes and that was disproportionately affecting our students of color. And so there are little places where we could be doing more work, but we haven't thought about a systematic solution. Everybody works in their own silos, you know, at the hospitals, just we need more diverse nurses, but they don't necessarily contact the local, you know, nursing schools and say, hey, what are you doing? And what are the partnerships that we should be developing along the way? you know we look at the amount of debt you're going to take on you know what are we doing at the hospital system to help alleviate the debt that they might take on like there's so many different pieces and until i always tell people if you have a systematic problem you need to have a systematic solution and you know we've talked about you know systemic and institutionalized racism but rarely do we have a systemic and institutionalized solution and because everyone works in their individual silos it typically we stall and people keep wondering why are we stalling and so we are going to have to take a step back, look at the system and look at all the points where these barriers are created and remove those barriers. And oftentimes when we do that, people think, oh, that means we're lowering our standards. And I always think maybe you have a standard that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's a more complicated question yeah. to ask is, is the standard even necessary? You know, we were using this personal statement against the student who clearly showed they, could, they had the, the, you know, the, the, the ability to do the job. They had all the necessary skills and we were holding up over a statement. Mm -hmm. that we're systematically moving them. And then I even sat in some of the the selection process and I remember sometimes they would say, um, well, who's their letter from? So even the letter of recommendation superseded, you know, if you had two students with 3.8s, it was what school did they go to and who was their letter of recommendation? Mm -hmm. They basically, in a way that they felt wasn't unfair were institutionalizing privilege and racism. Because typically if you're a kid from an underserved school, you don't know that you need to have a recommendation from a certain person. Mm -hmm. you're probably less apt to get into the school which will be respected so even when you get your three eight and you put that three eight next to your peer they don't take you because systematically we've put in these rules that remove you from this process and really unnecessarily and that's what makes people most uncomfortable is when we have to look at themselves and say what are the rules we've created that create barriers that aren't even necessary Mm -hmm. and to me that's where the solution lies is that we have to have uncomfortable conversations we have to look at why are we selecting students in this manner Mm You know and, and in many cases we even hold gpas against students in mm-hmm. ways you know it's it's 10 years ago and i still hold that gpa against me instead of saying well it's been 10 years let's deal with who we have in front of us right now which takes more work but if we don't do that we're going to continue to have the same problem
3: yeah
2: i would uh, agree with what jason has said and uh particularly at, at nursing schools one of the things that uh i know that they may be looking at is Uh, the passage on the NCLEX exam. You know, a lot of times, uh, let's face it, um, there are certain, uh, you know, cultures that have difficulty taking the standardized written test that uh, other cultures may have, uh, you know, no problem with. Um, So they begin to, the weeding out process, if you will, in certain ways, because they want to make sure that they maintain a high passage rate on the NCLEX exam so that, you know, their program can continue and can continue to get funding. So, instead of setting aside, um, you know, or, you know, actively recruiting, uh, you know, minorities and maybe, you know, offering tutoring courses that would help them uh, in the pre-nursing courses, you know, before they get in, they automatically begin to shut them out or they put in uh, a place, a system whereby they fail. Um, And here's a good example. You may pass a particular class, you may pass the final exam, but then sometimes they'll throw what they call a comprehensive final, and so even though you've passed all the courses and everything else, because you failed the comprehensive final, you don't get to you know you don't get to go on, and uh, you know that is a, a huge stumbling block in a, a, a situation like that. Another one, somewhat like what uh, Jason had suggested as well, is that. Um, we have these stumbling blocks. If you have uh, a person of color who may be working as a nursing assistant, uh, you know, their life may be different from their white counterpart, you know, who perhaps lives at home with mom and dad, whereas the the other person is either living on their own, having to pay bills and et cetera. That's the reason they have to work. So it's, um, you know, it's another stumbling block that they have to overcome to, you know, work eight or 12 hours, then come home, try to study, and then go to school as well. Whereas if a hospital were to put in a system whereby, you know, we want to invest in this person, we're going to pay you to go to school and you agree to come and work with us for you know X amount of years once you you graduate. To me, you're gonna have in place a person who's loyally committed to your institution because they realize you invested in them And so you're going to have a a more loyal employee than someone who's going to, you know, just take it as, oh, well, this is a a job or or perhaps an option of a job that I may have, uh, as opposed to someone who wants to pay you back or thank you for, uh, you know, for making that huge investment in their career and uh, in their employment after uh, graduating school as well. So those are just some examples of how, uh, you know, we put those stumbling blocks in, in the way that we need to, Perhaps consider removing those.
1: We absolutely have to remove these stumbling blocks. And Jason, you commented on we have to have a systematic solution. And I think about the role that higher education plays in, in solving this important problem. You know, just um, a few weeks ago, I, I was looking at social media, and there was a leader from one of the top healthcare organizations in our country, very highly respected, great outcomes, um, exemplar for the industry, but. He talked about you know like we have, um, you know, fifteen percent or twenty percent of our population that's African American, but the only there's only five percent of the physicians that are African American, mm-hmm. and we can't solve this problem. And his point was like you, we 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 just do cannot. Because of that disparity, and that's where higher education like he was saying higher education has to step up in a big way the nursing workforce of tomorrow is ultimately going to be be determined by advancing equity in higher education and we have to think about how to overcome the historically low underrepresentation of populations and, and enrolling in health profession schools and in learning environments and the continuing dearth of proven and replicable practices and advancing diversity is really going to be a challenge. So, you know, Dr. Jones-Schenk, I wanted to ask you, um, in recognizing that equity is the ultimate opportunity equalizer, how can we reinvigorate the promise of education for people of color and what can institutions of higher learning do to eliminate these barriers and to allocate resources really to provide equity and access to learning?
3: Eric, I think this question is weighing on the minds of every dean of every health profession school in the country today. Um, I was struck by what the AAMC said. um, And they said this, I quote, member institutions must be intentional in identifying exclusionary practices, critically deconstructing the practices that sustain inequities within our institutions, and acting to eliminate these Inequities. So it's well said, but it's harder to do. As Jason pointed out, there are there are a lot of things that are packed in there, right? So we have admission criteria that's packed in there, and then we have biases of people on admission committees who want to know um, who wrote the letter, and we have um uh, a stacking of years of under uh, support for education for fundamental sciences and math and the foundational skills that people need to move into the health professions and so they a lot of people are reaching this entry point without the preparation they need and instead of recognizing that and 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 turning course, toward preparing and supplementing that knowledge and supporting those learners. um, You know, our history has been one of turning them away. So we have to set goals. Uh, We have to create supporting structures to advance those goals, including education and communication, as I said before. And we have to declare our commitment through action. So this means standing up and empowering groups who can identify structural issues that support racism from within our environments and then resourcing their recommendations. So we've taken some early steps by asking our students and faculty and our alumni uh, to raise up visibility on unjust or questionable practices in teaching and learning. We've started with textbooks and other learning resources, and we've been intentional and urgent in removing objectionable materials uh, with haste. Um, So that's a start. Uh, We've started analyzing our student success outcomes to see where inequity exists. And we need to keep digging until we uncover the root causes. As Jason said, they're so tightly packed in. It's easy to just skim over the top and not see where the real is all of these steps are entirely insufficient uh, but they are start and we need to keep digging we need to keep unpacking we need to keep raising the questions Um, and we have to address inequity and representation within the faculty and within our leadership in universities uh, and in health professions colleges we need to be bold in setting goals uh, and, and developing the structures. And then we need to feel uncomfortable, and we are feeling uncomfortable. In fact, we've had some uh, difficult interactions already on this journey, and to me, that just says we are doing the right things. Um, we are um, gonna make some mistakes along the way, but we're gonna keep being bold, and we're gonna live with the discomfort as we find our way together forward. Um, With the vision in mind of reducing inequities in education, improving access, um, and ensuring that attainment is equitable, and opening opportunities to as many students as we can, Um, that's our pledge.
1: Thank you, Dr. Joan Shank, and I wanted to expound upon this idea of inequities in education because I really think it's important for our society to understand. Like, okay, so health professions are committed, you know, across the world, across the country. There's system wide approaches to creating meaningful change, and and they're implementing quality standards. They're looking at cultural changes to improve upon fairness, and they're fo- but they're focused on eliminating these implicit biases that are really in teaching and, and learning. And it's, you know, really I've been identified as a root cause of outcome disparities in educational uh, programs. And that's where I really wanted to, um, you know, to explore this a little bit more. So there's these micro inequities that are subtle, they're unconscious, they're sometimes even unintentional. Didn't mean, mean it to be there, didn't know it was there, but then because of it, that, that insertion of that implicit bias, it devalues The educational experience and it discourages and impedes academic performance and uh, implicit bias and uh, micro inequities have really been a challenge, but a lot of um, A lot of people out there may say, oh, come on, that does that really exist. You know, someone's going to get scared off or get offended. And why are we even concerned about that. It's minutia. You're talking about, you know, changing a, a one sentence. And how is that really going to transform education? So I wanted to land on that topic with you in higher education. So, Dr. John Shank, how can can you provide some insight rather on how the nursing how nursing programs should be thinking about eliminating this bias and learning, it, but also increasing awareness that it even exists? So that we can have more inclusive language with students, and really redesign how assessments are conducted, so we can have a nursing workforce that truly, I think, can persist for generations in, in and in a more in a interact in a more socially conscious way. And we can remove barriers that are currently in place in higher education.
3: It's a critical question, Eric. Um, I think the bias, as you as you stated, the challenge with bias and micro inequities is just how pervasive and invisible they are. Um, They're invisible to many of us who've lived with the status quo so long. So for me, that means I need new eyes. I need new ways of seeing. I have to open the channels of discussion with people who can see these biases and micro inequities and who do experience them. Um, I was stunned during one of our first faculty discovery sessions on this topic to hear faculty talk about teaching while Black and nursing while Black. Um, These experiences, I have never had, Um, but as executive dean, I have a responsibility. No, No, I have an obligation to uncover the systems, practices, and processes, and communications that create such experiences, and to the best of my ability, to eliminate them. So I have to really reach out to my colleagues who have these experiences, who have this knowledge, who have this perspective, to help me see in new ways and together we have to help our whole teams, our whole environment see in new ways. And we have to um, shun the, um, uh, some of the norms in society that say, oh, you're, you're just being PC or you're just trying to do the political correct thing. No, we're not. We're trying to correct uh, longstanding errors in our culture. And so we have to be bold and willing to stand up to the detractors who say, um, you know, that's not really that big a deal. Well, if it, if, it, if it manifests as an impact on a person, it is a big deal. And we have to, we have to be ready to, to uh, stand up to that. You know, we're, we're doing a bunch of things uh, across the university. We're a competency-based uh, university, and so we rely heavily on our centralized uh, assessment uh, processes. They're, they're a, a division within the university, and they've already taken a, a huge intervention across all of our assessments uh, to begin an initiative to analyze item differentiation as it relates to populations of learners. So they're taking this very seriously, because they know that there are micro inequities and bias in assessment as as Dr. Graham pointed out earlier in our national exams, uh, which are very much based on psychometrics, but are those psychometrics considering population specific differential analysis? I think there's a lot of work that can be done there. So until you see it, you can't change it. Mm -hmm. And once you see it, hopefully you can't unsee it. Mm So will higher ed be able to make the changes? I don't see it as a choice. Mm -hmm. I was gratified yesterday to see that 39 health systems across the nation declared racism a public health crisis Mm -hmm. and committed to address healthcare disparities across the nation. They've, They've made a real strong commitment. They've said they're going to make their hiring efforts inclusive. They're going to improve access uh, for COVID testing in underserved communities. I mean, they they came out a, with a list of things that they are going to do, mm-hmm. including increasing spending with diverse owned vendors and suppliers. And so we are suppliers of the workforce mm-hmm. to those healthcare systems. We must also make some pledges. And I would say a good place to start is the recent Macy Foundation report on addressing harmful bias and eliminating discrimination in health professions learning environments. And there are four recommendations that I'm gonna just share with you because I think this is a pledge that we in higher ed for the health professions could make and should make. Uh, Number one, uh, develop systems to assess and address the current state of bias and discrimination throughout the institution. So really a root cause analysis, uh, what, what is the current state? Number two, reduction of harmful bias and discrimination as an institutional priority. So that speaks to resources, communication, structures. Uh, Number three, comprehensive curricular offerings throughout the institution explicitly aimed at reducing harmful bias and discrimination. So directly uh, speaks to what our curricula are doing, Bringing forward, uh, both in terms of uh, social justice as well as, um, you know, the 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 tradition, the more traditional uh, cognitive focuses that our curricula has had. Uh, number four: increased representation of underrepresented backgrounds in trainee faculty and leadership positions. And finally, an institutional create an institutional culture of respect inclusion and and equity for all members. So these are big pledges. Um, These are important steps to take and and I just would encourage us as a higher ed community uh, to come together on these uh, on these recommendations and to be bold in stating our commitments.
1: Well said, Dr. Joan Shank. And uh, you know, I, I see that we're we're going to end this panel today fifteen minutes after the hour, so we have about ten minutes uh, for questions. So I'm going to pose one more question to Dr. Grant. For our uh, attendees out there, if you have any questions, please put those in the in the Q and A uh, box, and we'll go ahead and take a few of those questions. Um, But just one last question for the panel before I um, um, go to audience questions. Dr. Grant, I want to think about, you know, just as we conclude our our conversation today, how to catalyze change. And I think that's going to come about in the nursing profession, again, if we really mobilize in a united way around addressing uh, and eliminating uh, healthcare disparities. Can you speak to what ANA is doing uh, to empower nurses both socially and economically? Uh, to create meaningful change within healthcare organizations, higher education institutions, and also the political arena?
2: Certainly. Um, well, uh, most recently during our 2020 membership assembly, just in June, uh, we passed uh, or adopted a resolution on racial justice in, uh, for communities of color. And it reaffirms ANA's position against racism, discrimination, and healthcare dis- disparities. And some of the things that it, it pledges to do was to. Oppose and address all forms of racism and discrimination. Condemn brutality of law enforcement and all acts of violence. And uh, in partnerships with nurses everywhere, educate, advocate, and collaborate to end systemic racism, particularly within nursing itself. Uh, again, uh, taking what uh, Dr. Jones Shank said, and you know, looking inward first, and then you know, working uh, working outward for that. Uh, <clears throat> also. Uh, Advocate for the ending of health inequalities in communities and healthcare systems that stem from systemic racism, and then promote deliberate and respectful dialogue to effective listening. I think that's one thing that we probably hasn't uh, haven't listed today, but you know, just to really listen to what is uh, you know what is going on, and then uh, be committed to change that that uh, what you have found out from listening uh, along those aspects. I'd like to also just point out uh, one other quick thing from a financial perspective as well. Um, our philanthropic arm, the American Nurses Foundation just completed a financial impact survey uh, on uh, nurses as a result of COVID. And we found that uh, that there are uh, financial hardships of nurses we uh, were facing because of the, the pandemic, but it affected more the black and Hispanic and Latino nurses than their white counterparts, especially when it came to accessing savings, or stopping payments on student loans, or borrowing from friends and family, or even seeking assistance, such as charity, like going to a food bank. You know things that you wouldn't think that you know that that nurses uh, would do. So, by educating nurses, you know we're going to ha- about the importance of financial management is another uh, aspect to that will uh, will go as well. And we have a webinar on our site on our website. That helps to uh, address that particular issue, also. So uh, th- there's a lot that ANA is trying to do, and, and of course, trying to get nurses more politically active. You know, letting them know that you know they have a voice and they have a vote. And there's 4.3 million registered nurses out there. That's a pretty powerful voting block. And if we all, you know, do vote, doesn't matter what party it is that you you vote for. But the mere fact that you are voting to help drive change is extremely important
1: as well. Thank you, Dr. Grant. Uh, I don't see any questions from the audience, but please, if you have any, uh, feel free to type those in uh, to the Q and A box or or even in the chat window. We'll go ahead and monitor monitor that. Um, but you know, I, I guess as we look to wrap things up, and again, we have you know just about five minutes. Uh, you know, Jason, I wanted to go ahead and uh, you know transition back to you. If you could provide some concluding uh, commentary, you know, as Higher education, healthcare, and society um, partner together. We have this uncomfortable conversation and call it for what it is: we have racism. We must deal with it. Um, obviously, there's um, probably not as much public condemnation as we would like. I think we've uh, there's even you know some uh, some concern you know or some awareness that's been raised from the, the presidential debate the other night, but. Uh, Can you provide, you know, just some parting comments? Like how can we partner together in in a meaningful way to really come up with solutions for this very important problem?
0: Yeah, Um, yeah, I wish I had that answer. If I'm that good, uh, I'll probably be uh, busy with work all the time. Um, You know, I I think it's a fair question, though. You know, there are things we have to do, and one of it is we need to own ourselves. You know, a lot of times we think, oh, it's too big, but if each of us understood the data and and we all have a sphere of influence you know there are moments in time where we can make change and i would suggest every nurse has that moment every day where we can yeah. make sure that the care i'm delivering is the care that is appropriate for that patient and if all of us took on that onus we could make change because each of us are responsible to it you know we call the health disparities that is actually the behavior of each one of us each one of us are contributing to that in some way so if each of us were to say you know what i i, I read a little bit and try to make sure I think about what I'm doing every day, and am I treating all the patients with the care that they deserve? Or is it sometimes I'm rushed and I move past some rooms faster than others? You know, Those things make us uncomfortable, but we've got to stay in that space. And if each of us made that commitment, I do think we could make change. Um, you know, Because if you think about it, it is the summation of all our individual behaviors that creates health disparities. So if each of us make commitment, we could actually reduce health disparities by being very intentional and staying in an uncomfortable place.
1: Very well said. And, you know, I'd love to have this conversation again. I think we have to to be able to overcome this important problem. One question we just had come in from the audience, isn't there a way to add mandatory diversity training? I, I guess there, you know, maybe there's a um, question there around, is it effective? I mean, we can make it mandatory. Can any of you provide some perspective on that? This might be our last question today, but we might be able to take another one, but I wanted to at least present that as an audience question.
0: Yes, as somebody who does a lot of diversity training, I would say it's not mandatory training, it's consistent regular training. the reason mandatory training doesn't work is you train people once and the assumption is it fixes it forever and it doesn't. And what we need to have is every month or every week or whatever, you need to continue to have these conversations because issues around race are complicated and issues around health disparities can be complicated. And so people need to be reminded on a regular basis. That's how you get the change. If you want people's change in their behavior, you have to remind them all the time and make them conscious of these uh, challenges that we face as an organization or as a system.
2: I would also say, uh, add to that, that the word mandatory already throws up uh, a a wall, a a brick wall, so that the person may not be receptive, even though they recognize it as a problem, but because they're being told you have to do this uh, or you have to attend this course, they may not be as receptive as if... uh, if it were not going on constantly you know, and consistently uh, you know, and being re-evaluated periodically as well.
3: Well, and we think about in nursing, we think about the mandatories, right? Fire and safety, HIPAA, um, all the mandatory trainings. And I think it, the word mandatory has gotten kind of a bad rap uh, in in the sense that it's really about continuous improvement and. You know, training that helps us to be better uh, oriented to the, the requirements of our interaction in the world. I mean, whether it's sexual harassment training, whether it's racial bias training, um, <clears throat> uh, whatever that form that training may take, um, I, I would like to see us uh, get rid of the word <laughs> mandatory uh, because I agree with you, Dr. Grant. It's it's like okay, or we're just going to get the stick out and make you be there. And I kind of wonder how that uh, sets us up to learn.
1: It's a great point. Um... So uh, I, I guess I don't see any other questions coming in from the audience, but a lot of great comments. I wanted to thank you all on our panel today. I think we had a wonderful discussion and hopefully I believe through this dialogue we can create some uh, meaningful change. I would love to have this conversation and then really go maybe have a part two, um, which we're, we could have more uh, you know, solutions and thinking. This is a problem, institutional racism, uh, it is a problem in health value. We have to solve it, and I think it's going to come through partnership between higher education. It's going to come uh, with the industry <laughs> as well as our society. And again, thank you for our panelists today. Um, I, I just uh, think we had a really uh, important conversation, and um, you know, and, and I appreciate everyone from joining us today.